Welcome back to the Independent Intel Podcast. This is episode five, episode five for the viewers and listeners, mostly listeners, since this is a audio-oriented podcast more so than a video-oriented podcast. I'm your host, Kim Bumani. Here we're going to talk about an array of topics centered around last weekend's playoffs and how it will relate to this year's playoffs as we move on from wild card weekend to divisional round in the NFL. Also have really an NBA topic to talk about, more importantly, the sense of the pandemic, you know, coronavirus, COVID-19, as we like to shorten case it, namesake-wise, has been tearing through the league left and right, kind of like how it's normally been doing. So through a variety of sporting leagues in American, you know, culture that's gone on through a pandemic, you know, NFL had its crisis, MLB had its crisis as well. But the NBA is a little bit more hectic considering that players are able to go you know, to and fro, you know, from their jobs back to their own place, which they weren't really able to do in the bubble when they resumed play for the postseason last year. So we'll slightly address that situation as well in terms of what is the more realistic approach Adam Silver and the league's executives can take for the betterment of not only their players, but their product as a whole, well-renowned and known as the National Basketball Association across the globe. Now, for the NFL playoffs, wildcard weekend was a first for a variety of reasons. This was the first time there were three wildcard football games on Saturday and Sunday. Now, usually in National Football League history, when it's wildcard weekend, you usually have a total of six teams playing. So that means two games per weekend day. So two games on Saturday, two games on Sunday. Most importantly, you usually have two games maybe one AFC, one NFC one day, one AFC, one NFC the other day, and that would consider your wild card weekend. This year, the league decided to add a seventh playoff spot for not only the AFC and the NFC, and I wouldn't be surprised if down the line there will be an eighth spot added into the list as well. Stay tuned for probably the next, I don't know, 10 or 20 years for that situation to be gradually brought up and intermingled into National Football League playoff culture. But we had three games. And it was the two seed versus the seven seed, the three seed versus the six seed, four seed versus the five seed in the American Football Conference and National Football Conference. Now we're going to start with the AFC where I'm going to briefly, you know, stress upon the significance of all three games before segueing into the games that are coming up this week that have the utmost importance in terms of sending teams in both conferences to their conference championship game, which leaves you at the precipice of being one step closer to the NFL's most globally renowned game known as the Super Bowl. So in the AFC, the Buffalo Bills had their first home playoff game in over 25 years against the Indianapolis Colts, and it kind of went like I thought it would. Now, before I go into these games a little bit more in-depthly, I want to give myself a pound back for going 4-2 in my predictions. Um, now, my two L's were in coordinates or in relation towards the final results of the Rams-Seahawks game and the Browns-Steelers game. And we can both make a strong case that a lot of the uh, American football viewership, you know, cult that exists in American culture did not expect those things to happen. Um, But we'll slowly divulge into why they happened. And is this something that both of these teams that came out victorious that no one thought would can continue this momentum into the divisional round and maybe make a Super Bowl push. Now back to the Bills and Colts. You know, Josh Allen continued his play. I mean, he's been playing at a high octane level for the past really year. And he carried over his <clears throat> positive play in the regular season into the postseason. He had a great performance in terms of throwing for two touchdowns, rushing for one, throwing for over 320 yards, rushing for over 50 yards. And he kind of helped the Buffalo Bills get back on track late in the first half when they're relatively stagnant offensively. The ground game wasn't really up to its normal level really hasn't been up to a proficient level all year so Allen had to basically put the team on his back for lack of a better words and make some big time throws him and Stephon Diggs continued their lethal connection Diggs had over 100 yards and a touchdown on six catches and the Bills got it done now they were very fortunate that the Colts didn't execute on some of the misgivings that they had in the red zone now before I go in depth on the misgivings we do need to state the fact that Indianapolis led by Phillip Rivers, arguably probably played their best football game of the season, and they lost. Phillip Rivers threw for over 300-plus yards, threw two touchdowns, didn't throw, any, didn't throw any interceptions, didn't get sacked at all. The team ran 
for a combined 170 plus yards on the ground. Jonathan Taylor had 78. Naeem Hines had 75 yards. They were able to get inside the red zone. They controlled the ball for 35 plus minutes. But the key components of the game, there were two or four or four downs, and they missed a very crucial field goal that could have cut the deficit, you know, in, towards a margin that they could, in essence, propel past and get a W. Um, we're going to go over those. We're going to go in depth on those two point, not the two point conversion, but the fourth down misgivings. They were up 10 7 late in the first half, and Frank Reich, their head coach, decided to go for it on fourth down. And I know the narrative he kept preaching to his team all week that they kept talking about in the game was Buffalo, you got to treat Buffalo at the Kansas City, their high tank offense. You can't, when you have your own respective offensive possessions, get in the red zone, not get touchdowns and settle for three. You have to go for the juggler at all costs. And I respect that sentiment. But in this essence, you're up. Not being able to get any type of points on that drop, especially since you're that close to the red zone, is a momentum killer. And you guys were in the driver's seat when it came to momentum. So let's say you kick the field goal. You go up 13-7. You kick it back to Josh Allen. They go the length of the field. They go up 14-13. You're only down one. Instead, which isn't that bad, even though Buffalo gets the ball to start the second half. If Buffalo, let's say Buffalo scores twice, like they score before the half and they score the kickoff the half, boom, 21-13, right? It's still a one-possession game. You got to play the long game and also – Test the waters of how everything was going. You're up 10-7, and it wasn't like at that point Buffalo was moving the ball at a lethal pace during that point of the game. Now, they eventually did so in the second half. But in the first half, they weren't really moving at that high octane clip. Reich, went, I think, overthought the situation. Perfectly drawn play out of a crossing route between Rivers and Michael Pittman Jr. Didn't execute to its fullest capability. Turnover on downs. Buffalo goes the length of the field. They get a touchdown. They're helped out by, you know, penalty and other misgivings on the Colts defensive side. And boom, just like that, it's 14-10. Buffalo gets a rhythm heading into the half. They come out for halftime. I think they score again. But for lack of a better term, once Buffalo scored before the half and took the lead, that's when I think as a team on that sideline, they developed, not developed, but they commenced with a collective side relief. Like, okay. We started off slow, but we were able to put ourselves in position to get ahead before the game, you know, went to intermission. And they felt pretty confident about themselves that they're going to execute and make things happen. And they did. And so, you know, that third quarter, not that I break it up, um, Buffalo scored three points in the third quarter. They didn't really heat up until kind of the late, the early parts of the fourth. And so I think going forward on fourth down the red zone, the missed field goal that their kicker had um, by, you know, the kicker, Rodrigo, things just, they fell apart by not executing on the opportunities that they had. They did a great job not turning the ball over. They did a great job protecting Phillip. They did a great job possessing the clock. And I said, heading into the game, that if Indianapolis was able to run the ball at a high octane clip against the Buffalo Bills defense that's susceptible against the run, and control the clock to where Josh Allen isn't on the field time and time again, they'd be in a good place. And they were in a very good place. Got to the point where they had the ball last with a chance to win. But inevitably, when you saw it came down to a Hail Mary for them to have the utmost chance to come out with a victory since they weren't in field goal range to kick a long-range field goal to send it to overtime, you kind of knew the damage was done. Indianapolis wasn't going to get it done. As for Buffalo, a lot of good things to be confident about. Josh Allen continues that hot streak, but there are some things you need to be nervous about, considering the fact that you are going to take on a Baltimore Ravens team that is just as good, not just as good, but supremely better at rushing the football and much more committed to do so since it's the focal point of their offense than Indianapolis is. And if you let the Colts as a team rush for 150-plus rushing yards, then who's to say how are you going to attain that Baltimore Ravens rushing attack that in my opinion, found his groove against the Tennessee Titans and were able to run the ball at a productive clip, even when Tennessee knew that's what Baltimore would like to bring to the table. So Bills are in a good position. I don't think Baltimore is the team that they are happy to see. Ideally, Pittsburgh, if they would have not, you know, wet the bed against Cleveland, that would have been, I think, a little better matchup for the Buffalo Bills. Now it puts the test on their defense. Can they be able to slow down the running game? Because Buffalo, not Buffalo, Baltimore is going to take a committed effort, not take, but make a committed effort towards not just running the football, but making sure they suck the life out of the time. 
And if they dominate time of possession and limit Buffalo to about two or three possessions a half, there's a huge problem in terms of how Buffalo can maximize their fullest potential as a team. Because this year in particular, it's been their offense that's kind of elevated this team towards unreal heights. Their defense has kind of been lagging behind throughout the year. A lot of people thought they kind of got themselves together towards the end of the season. But as we can see is the Colts, maybe they got themselves together against weaker competition. Um, the offense is only get tougher for here for the Buffalo defense. So you start to wonder, is their Achilles heel in terms of stopping the run? And being able to get pressure on the quarterback, will that eventually be their Achilles heel down the road? Now, the game that followed Buffalo and Indianapolis was the Seattle Seahawks and the Los Angeles Rams. And in my first episode of the Independent Intel podcast, maybe episode two, I documented that I was very high on the Rams at the time. They had the defense to possibly not only compete in the NFC during the playoffs, but come out the NFC. But Jerry Goff started to slide even more as a passer. It seemed that they were somewhat committed, but not truly committed at running the football. And because their offense showed bouts of ineptitude late in the year, bad loss against the Jets and the Seahawks, it just had me be, you know, put them on pause in terms of looking at them as a legit contender. Then coming into this game, they were starting John Wolford over Jerry Goff. And before Wolford got knocked out against the Seahawks in this playoff matchup, he actually performed pretty well. He's making some accurate passes. He gets knocked out of the game. Jared Goff commences onto the field and takes over the reins of the Sean McVay-led offense. He was 9 of 19, uh, you know, threw for over 170-something yards. He did throw a touchdown, didn't throw any interceptions, but you can honestly tell when you looked at the game, the zip wasn't there, the accuracy wasn't there, and he was hampered with a bum hand in terms of being able to make the precision, make the precise throws. Couple that handicapness with the accuracy aspect of throwing the football, his decision-making was kind of in a way where it was all over the place, which has which is what it has been the last month of December. And so having that recipe for a quarterback that's hampered in terms of being able to throw the ball at a proficient rate, coupled with the fact that they're a poor decision maker as well, not a great recipe of success. But what helped the Rams in this football game was their defensive line and their running game. Now, before we go to the defensive line, let's go to Cam Akers, man. Cam Akers has kind of emerged late in the year as their go-to running back within their offense. And I said in the second episode of the Independent Intel podcast, the problem with the Rams were they didn't really know who their bell cow running back was. They tried to do the running back by committee with Malcolm Brown, with Cam Akers, and with Daryl Henderson. But when they were in their prime in terms of successful years, their two-year stint where they won the NFC West, and they were legit containers in the NFC. Todd Gurley was that bell cow in terms of being able to run up the middle and also catch out the backfield. Cam Akers provided a sense of, you know, flashbackness, if I must say, in terms of he was able to do what Todd Gurley did during that two-year stint where he was the best back in the game. Cam Akers ran for 130-plus yards, had a 45 yards receiving, had a touchdown, had over 150, not 150, but over 170 plus yards of total offense. He was the LA Rams offense of productivity. And he did a fabulous job in terms of breaking the will of the Seattle Seahawks defense. And I said, um, in this game, it was going to come down to which offense breaks the will of their opposition's, you know, defense. And I thought it would be Seattle through the passing game. They were never able to get the passing game on par because Russell Wilson never had time. And Seattle eventually in the game started to utilize the rushing attack, but it was too late. Once you're down 30 to 13, it's GG's. And I said heading into the postseason that Russell Wilson's high level of play was starting to tell off, mainly because their offensive line started to showcase shortcomings. He started pressing, and Seattle kind of got away from what makes them offensively balanced. And what makes them hard to defend as an offense is they established the running game and they play through that to get off through the pass. Now, anytime a quarterback utilizes their running in to profit off of, you know, their passing success, individuals don't look at them as an elite quarterback, and they usually articulate such an offensive system as being a slight towards their ability to carry a team on his shoulders through their arm. Russell Wilson isn't Ryan Tannehill. He isn't Kirk Cousins. And what I mean by that is he isn't a quarterback that isn't elite to the point where they need a running in to be successful. But I feel like what he's profited off of throughout his career and what Seattle as an offense does best is 
they run through Chris Carson or Carlos Hyde. doesn't matter. Just run through any of the bad feet like the future within their offense. They run through that guy to help protect an offensive line. They just can't 29, 30 times a game draw back and pass protection. You help them get in a rhythm, elevate their confidence by grounding and pounding the opposition. And then you attack the team deep down the field off of play action passes vertically where you can test the defense that you're going against by utilizing your wide receivers on the outside's biggest assets, which is their verticality on deep routes. They tried the shotgun slinging around the yard for the jump. And Jalen Ramsey took DK Metcalf straight off the map. I thought Tyler Lockett did a very good job early on in terms of making some contested catches. And he seemed like early on he was going to be a integral focal point within their game plan offensively, but he was never really able to get it going because offensively, they couldn't protect their quarterback. And that was the difference. Aaron Donald had two sacks. He's one of the best defensive tackles in all of football. Jalen Ramsey did a great job excluding DK Metcalf from the game. And once Wilson wasn't able to step up in the pocket and make downfield throws to his weapons, that was it. They took forever to go back to the running game. And I think the main reason why, and this is the same incident that Tennessee had, and we're going to talk about that as well in depth when I focus on the Ravens-Baltimore game. Well, not Ravens-Baltimore, <laughs> the Baltimore-Tennessee game. In the playoffs, you're going to have tough yards running. That doesn't mean stop running the football. Just because you run the ball twice on a three-down set, and the two times you run the football on a possession, you get five yards combined. That doesn't mean, oh my goodness, we can't run the football. Let's stop. There's going to be gritty, grinding yards through the trenches in the playoffs. It's physical big boy football against defenses largely, more times than not, that can hold their own against the run or the pass. It's not going to be easy pickings. And I thought Seattle early on tried to establish the running game. They saw it was going to be some tough running. They were like, nah, we're not feeling that. We think we got something in terms of attacking the Rams' elite secondary. That didn't happen. And I think the biggest regret that Pete Carroll will probably have, not just in this game, but throughout the year, the success of DK Metcalf. Now, the DK Metcalf hype was immense. And it wasn't just from his teammates. It was from social media. It was from, you know, analysts who look at football and analyze on a daily basis as journalists. They started talking about DK as being the next Calvin Johnson, the next big thing at receiver. And what we saw against Jalen Ramsey was him just get physically overwhelmed by a cornerback who uses his physicality along with his technique to showcase his supreme competitive nature as a ball hawking cover corner. Now, the biggest problem with DK Metcalf is his route tree is very rudimentary. He'll give you the vertical, he'll give you the fly, he'll give you a slant and maybe a post. Everything he does productively from a route tree standpoint is downfield. If you get into his hip pocket and take away his vertical shot, vertical opportunities down the field, he's not going to really give you anything else on the tree. He's not going to give you an out. He's not going to give you a, a dig. You know what I'm saying? Oh, a comeback. We may give you a comeback, but he's not going to give you anything towards the sidelines that tests the cornerback's mentality. When, as a cornerback, you go against a receiver and you know it, all I got to worry about is prevent him from getting on top of me. That That's that's easy. And DK's got to go into the lab and understand, look, your physical freaking nature, already you can step on the field on a variety of corners and go off from them because of your speed and physicality. But what if you go against somebody, <laughs> Jalen Ramsey, who you face twice a year in your division, that that style of play plays into their strengths as well. You got to add other aspects to your bag. And he has to become a better route runner, which is why I feel like he didn't resemble Calvin this early in his career. He reminded me a lot of a young Des Bryant, who also didn't have a very extensive route tree either. But he was physically overwhelming as a human freak of nature to go along with his speed and precision in and out of breaks that it didn't matter against a lot of cornerbacks. But when you play the elite athletes like Cromarty or the technically sound physicians such as Darrell Revis, he gets neutralized and it kind of handicaps the offense collectively as a unit in terms of reaching their fullest potential because they extremely rely on his ability to get out of his breaks and get open on any route tree that they draw up. And so, yeah. Now for the Rams, they do have two big questions. Cam Akers' productivity running the football is great. And I think it's something he could continue against a Green Bay Packers team that is very susceptible against the run. Problem with the Rams are John Wolford 
Jared Goff. Both guys are nicked up. Wolford had a severe neck injury. It seemed that he got sent to the hospital. According to Sean McVay, he's okay. Good enough to even be within the question of who starts at quarterback for the Rams. And so he has a quarterback controversy because before Wofford got hurt, even though three of six doesn't seem world beating, he played way better in that brief stint he had in the first quarter than Jared Goff did the rest of the game. And so I, it seems like if Wofford can go, McVay's going to point the arrow to him to be the starter. And if he's the starter in Lambeau Field, role playoff game, I don't know if that's enough, which means the Rams are going to have to be very successful in terms of ball control, running the football, maximizing their offensive possessions, and making sure they get seven and don't settle for three. Defensively, they have by far the best defense in all the football. The front seven's nasty. Their back end is just as nasty. They're a physical, ball-hawking, disciplined bunch, but they're also could be without Aaron Donald on. His second sack, I think, on Russell Wilson, he landed, his body went, Russell landed on his chest or his rib area, and he was clutching it, and he was really never the same the rest of the game. And so all signs point to if he could go, he'll go, but a non-100% Aaron Donald is cool because he's still a productive freak of nature, but if he's out there and he's like 50%, that's not going to be a good thing because everybody talks about Leonard Leonard Floyd, the edge-rushing, pass-rushing linebacker that they added within their team from Chicago having a career year. A lot of his career year success has been because Aaron Donald draws multiple double teams in the trenches, allowing him to go one-on-one on the outside. If Donald can't play or he doesn't demand that same attention because the opposition quickly knows he's not 100%, it's not going to allow other guys on that D-line to get off as well. I like the Rams to have a nice chance because defensively they're so elite in the trenches elite on the back and they're disciplined they make tackles they make plays on the ball they don't get beat every yard is a hard-earned yard but a defense can only do so much and eventually your offense is gonna have to make a play can cam Akers have another all-purpose showing that he had against seattle to elevate these guys to the championship game maybe but against a green bay packers squad it's going to be a very tough challenge and in the last game of that Saturday, we had Washington football team against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And in that game, I said for Tampa Bay to win, they're going to have to establish the running game and not just rely on Tom Brady's arm to get it get it out the mud, to get their first playoff win in nearly two decades. They actually relied on Tom Brady's arm. And now Brady did get sacked three times, but he threw for 381 yards. He threw for two touchdowns. And for most of the nights, even though he, he was sacked three times, he had a clean pocket to operate. And Mike Evans and Chris Godwin had a field day against Washington secondary. Kendall Fuller could not stay with Evans. Ronald Darby could not hang with Godwin. And it was probably Tampa Bay's most proficient offense in showing to date. And that's kind of saying a lot since they had a very good December in terms of dusting up on trash teams. But the Washington football team isn't a world-beating team either, but they did have a top-five defense that could not get to Tom Brady consistently early on. And that's a promising thing for a Tampa Bay offensive line that has struggled throughout the year against elite pass rushes. They had their first positive showing against elite pass rush in terms of not allowing that defensive front line to get to Tom Brady and knock him off his square. And they're going to need it against a Saints defense that has showcased that they're just as stout against the run. And if they do happen to take away Leonard Fournette, who could start yet again on a Sunday night because Ronald Jones' health isn't as 100% as the team thought, if that running game is eradicated and Tom Brady does have to draw back and throw 40 times a game, 40 times in a divisional round playoff game against a vaunted New Orleans Saints defense, will that offensive line hold him just like they did against Washington to allow him to have the time to dissect the secondary and get a victory? We don't know. As for Washington, their defense sold. I mean, offensively, they scored 23 points. Taylor Heineke had a great game. He threw for over 300 yards. Um, I think through two touchdowns, he had played phenomenal. He overachieved as a third-string practice squad quarantine quarterback that no one really took as a legit factor in this football game. Everybody thought it was going to come down between Brady and the Washington football team defense. It literally came down between Heineke and Brady. Now, looking back, if Heineke maybe doesn't have that drop pass opportunity on the first drop of the game, uh, if you know, there wasn't some offensive shortcomings that he was able to, that he had to succumb to throughout a pick that he threw off of a tip ball. There were two possessions, the drop pass on the first possession. And they, I think the second possession 
or another position in the first quarter. It was tipped at the line. It was picked off by uh, Murphy Bunting. If those two miscues didn't happen offensively, Washington probably scores 30, which means Tampa Bay defensively is a far cry from what everybody was lauding them as being eight weeks into the season. They're very opportunistic, talented, but undisciplined defense. They can be had. And having a defensive coordinator like Todd Bowles doesn't help because he is an intricate defensive coach, but shows a tendency to leave his young, inconsistent, and undisciplined cornerbacks on an island with a variety of blitzes that he sends at the opposition's quarterback. And, you know, when you have that type of youthful exuberance in terms of being undisciplined at the wrong time, coupled with a defensive coordinator that showcases no cognizant wherewithal when to pull back all he knows is full throttle blitz at any means doesn't spell like a good good recipe so we'll see how defensively they hold up against the Saints offense that was a little bit much maligned in the first half against the Chicago Bears before they decided to just grind it out in the second half and just go on long lengthy rushing drives to take the heart out of the Bears defense we'll see but man something to look out for something to look out for that's something to also look towards as a viewer. And Sunday, we had three more games on a wildcard weekend schedule. The biggest one on a weekend, could Lamar Jackson get his first playoff victory as a Baltimore Ravens quarterback? And aren't just really first playoff victory as an NFL quarterback, bumping the Baltimore Ravens quarterback itself. Uh, he did so. Now, it looked sketchy. They were down 10-0 against the Titans early, and it was one of those, uh-oh, here we go again. You know the narrative about the Ravens and Lamar. When they get down by double digits, his limitations as a passer isn't enough to get them out of the hole. And he helped put them in that hole with a horrible, horrible first pass of the game where the play was designed to where it was a perfectly designed play. It was a route. It was kind of like, a, like an angle route towards the sideline. And all Lamar had to do was throw it towards the sideline to where only his receiver or the sideline can get it. Instead, he threw it away from the sideline inside to where the defender could get it, which Malcolm Butler did. And after that, the guys were like, oh, my goodness, Lamar, he's up to no good. After that, he played particularly well. Now, he didn't throw for 200 yards passing. He threw for like 176 yards, but he ran for 130 plus, had one rushing touchdown, a huge rushing touchdown that helped put the Baltimore Ravens on the board when they were down 10 nothing. And he and Marquise Hollywood Brown developed a solid connection throughout the game that had a report that allowed Baltimore to get deeper and deeper into the red zone to have other scoring opportunities. But while he was the MVP of the offense, Baltimore's run defense stepped up when they struggled last postseason against Derrick Henry and the Titans and also in the regular season when they played the Titans again. Now, I didn't think the Titans were persistent or bludgeoning enough as a running team. I thought they settled in terms of just wanting to put the game in Ryan Tannehill's hands. Tannehill had 26 pass attempts, threw for 165 yards. He threw a touchdown pass, had a great opening drive where he couldn't miss. And then after that opening drive, he kind of wasn't the same. And that makes sense considering the fact that the allure early on in the game was let's stop Derrick Henry. Ryan Tannehill was kind of in the driver's seat. He's playing with house money. But as the game wore on and it started to become a blatant reality, oh, oh crap, like we're struggling to run with Derrick, rush with Derrick Henry, who finished the game with 18 carries and 40 yards. His longest run was eight. Now, just like I said for the Seahawks, I'm going to say this for the Titans as well. Derrick Henry wasn't getting stopped. He was getting neutralized, but he wasn't getting stopped. Those two words have two different defined meanings. The getting stopped means we're trying and we're getting nowhere. Getting neutralized means there's a level of productivity, but it doesn't align to the means that we're normally accustomed to. And it was neutralized that truly defined the rushing performance that Derrick Henry had against the Baltimore Ravens defense. But on fourth, third and two, and fourth and two, when you're down seven, in the fourth quarter, after Derrick Henry ran for eight yards on first down, you run him again, bro. You keep running him. That drive where you're down seven, Derrick Henry touches the ball. Let's say you have a hypothetically, you have a 10 play drive. Derrick Henry touches the ball in a rushing wise at least six. He touches the ball at least six times. 
you're going to live and die by running the football. I don't think Tennessee truly wanted to live and die by that vernacular. I think they thought it was sweet because they played Baltimore twice in a span of less than a year, and they were accustomed to just running on these guys. So they play the same personnel. They're not having that same level of success, and they kind of stray away from it and are like, Tannehill, take us over the top. And he couldn't do it. And Ryan Tannehill is a guy who has had a great career revitalization in terms of segueing from the Miami Dolphins to this Tennessee Titans, having two Pro Bowl caliber seasons to the point where guys look at him a lot different from what they looked at him when he was with the Miami Dolphins. When he was with Miami, he was a top 10 first. Was he a top 10 pick? Top 15 pick? Somewhere in that range. They look at him as a first round pick that busted out. Now with Tennessee, they look at him as an opportunistic passer that is regarded as one of the more underrated quarterbacks in all of football. But Ryan Tannehill, like her cousins, but he's a, he's a tier under Kirk Cousins. His passing success the last two years has been predicated off of Derrick Henry running the football at a high octane clip. When that allure of the running game is further neutralized and all the pressure is put on him to have to take them over the top by making consecutive, consistent, accurate pinpoint passes to drive the length of the field for a game-changing score, he's not your guy. He showcased that last playoffs and he showcased that again. And so while Tannehill won't be on the clock, I give Ryan maybe a couple more seasons of the same song and dance with the Titans until Tennessee will look at this situation and be like, to be honest, while he puts up better numbers than Mariota, we're basically left in the same situation that Mariota put us in when he was our quarterback. Have a chance to be in the playoffs. We'll get there. We may win a game if we play a team that is also just as handicapped quarterback-wise via the air are also handicapped offensively because their quarterback relies on the running game. But when we play a team that can diverge from their rushing attack and can take their take their team over the top with their arm, and we got to compete with that, good luck. And so that's one of the main reasons why I didn't have Tennessee making the playoffs this year. I didn't think that offensively they can duplicate that success again. Derrick Henry never ran for, you know what I'm saying, a 1,000 yards consecutively because he wasn't a guy that they constantly leaned on to be that bell cow until the last two years they did. Ryan Tannehill, great career year, but his career, you know, not just his career numbers, but who he is as a quarterback in this league didn't make me compelled enough to be like, okay, he's going to totally do that again and run back the wagons. No, they did in the regular season. It got him to the playoffs, but those two individuals kind of regressed back to their normal career means. Derrick Henry has been an all-pro running back for two years. But when push comes to shove and you need Derrick Henry to take you over the top, he just isn't that guy. And to be fair, not a lot of running backs are. You know what I'm saying? They they were early on in the merger era, in the merger days, where running the football was the way to go. You had to run your way to the title. You can no longer truly run your way to a title solely in the NFL. But he showcased, you know, He's got a tap-out match. He's got a tap-out moment. You know, Derrick Henry is kind of, I hate to say it, maybe the Damian Lillard of the NFL. And what I mean is he can get you a playoff game. Great regular season moments, a playoff game. But you expect him to be a foundational piece towards a title? No. Ryan Tannehill, great guy, great comeback story. He's going to continue to be a solid NFL quarterback for years to come. But he's not a game-changing player to take your team over the top. However, while those two guys regress back to their career means, that Tennessee defense is horrible. And I didn't expect them to be this bad, but I did call a substantial regression to their defense heading into the year. I don't think they ever replaced Darrell Casey. And who, and who can? This short notice. I mean, you traded him before the season started. He didn't really resolve it in the draft or in free agency. You honestly can. They thought, hey, we can get some edge rushers and Clowney and Beasley. Maybe there'll be a difference Beasley was such was such a great difference that he's no longer on the team. Clowney, I don't think, ever registered a sack this season. A complete free agent signing bust. Uh, and then back deep in the secondary, they miss Logan Ryan. You know, Adoree Jackson just isn't it. He's a great athlete, um, but his ball skills aren't great. And recently, he's been in and out of lineup due to injury. Now, I thought Malcolm Butler had a career year. Uh, I thought Kevin Byard continued to kind of play how he normally plays. But 
they just didn't have that game breaker or that solid veteran voice to kind of put things in perspective back deep. And they didn't have that pass rusher that could push the middle or set the middle. I've set a rock in the middle. And that's what they missed against Baltimore. Lamar Jackson, a lot of his runs was up the middle. A lot of Baltimore's runs were up the middle in terms of progress, progressive five to 10 plus yard rushes. And those things weren't happening last year when they had Casey plug in the middle. Lamar had to bounce outside. Ingram had to bounce it to the outside. And once they bounced it to the outside, that allowed Tennessee speed at the cornerback and linebacker position to go full throttle and bring down the ball carriers. And so, you know, Tennessee regressing back to kind of who they really are this year played a part. Also, Baltimore sticking to who they were and Lamar trusting his gifts, not making not making the moment bigger than what it already is. It's already a big moment. It's the playoffs. You know what you need to do to be successful. He went out of his way to be productive as a player, as a player first, for his team first, more so than let me be the ideal quarterback. It worked out for him. We'll see what happens when they play Buffalo. The next game following this was the Saints and the Bears. And let's be honest, as a Saints fan, I was frustrated. They were up 7-3, and I was like, Chicago can't hang with us. Now, Chicago could have, should have been up 10-7, but Javon Williams had a case of the butterfingers, and he didn't execute the, the trickeration play that allowed Trubisky to hit a dude on the numbers in the end zone incomplete. Second half, after Sean Payton, I thought was being a relatively cute play caller in terms of, oh, I'm going to get two guys that nobody looks at on our scouting report as guys to zero in on defensively. I'm going to get those guys off. And one of those guys was Deontay Harris. Got him off, I think, on the first two drives. And they kind of strayed away from it and implemented Taysom Hill within their packages and Taysom Hill was out here throwing the ball and stuff. And they were down 7-3. Second half, he said, you know what? We're going to run Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray down these guys' throat. I'm going to run Taysom Hill down their throat. They literally possessed the ball three times. First two times they scored, and then the third time when they didn't score in the red zone, it was a turnover on downs. They possessed it for, possessed it for so long, and it was about three minutes left for Chicago got it back. And on Chicago's end, when they got the ball, they didn't score. They didn't execute offensively to where they allowed them to be in a position to make it a legit threat down the stretch. And so what I deducted from it was, listen, Drew Brees is still limited as a passer. It's not a threat defensively deep. Defense is going to continue to test that Saints offense and test the receivers at the top of the line and be like, look, man, if Drew can make a contested vertical pass down the field, respect. If not, we're going to continue to take away those short passes. We're going to continue to stack the box and make every hard earned run a tough one. But what they did against Chicago that they didn't do against Minnesota last year was they went out in the second half and established their physical will and physically overwhelmed and overpowered a Chicago defense that Although it was missing Roquan Smith, one of the better middle linebackers in all of football, they still had Khalil Mack. Akeem Hicks was still giving them issues in the middle. They physically overwhelmed Chicago down the stretch around the football, and that made all the difference. Now, well, can they do that against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense that is top five in the league in rushing, run defense, number two to be exact? Yeah, and I think for the Saints to come out of the NFC, I think for the Saints to win a championship – they're way more physical and have been more physical the last two to three years than other Saints teams in the past in the Sean Payton era. For them to make it all the way, they're going to have to physically exert themselves, not just defensively, but offensively as well in the trenches. Going to have to run the football, going to have to make it a slow, grinded out football game, going to have to limit the opposition's opportunities to maximize their offensive potential. And then when it's all said and done, you may have a score like this. Maybe. 21 and 9, which was the final score between the Saints and the Bears. It may be 17 and 14, but the end game isn't about style points in the playoffs. Style point, the style points are reserved for the regular season. Those days are over. It's all about winning the game in the NFL playoffs. And Saints did that. Wasn't really impressed with how they did it from a complete game standpoint, because that first half was very underwhelming and horrible, but they got it done in the second half. Major props to them. They're going to be in for a dogfight against their divisional rival, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But I do like their chances. And then the last wild card game that they had last weekend, before I wrap it up and transition to the divisional round, 
was a matchup between the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, I'm going to be honest, nothing against the Browns. You know, the Browns is the Browns are the Browns. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's tough. Nothing against the Browns. They took advantage of Pittsburgh miscues, but Pittsburgh beat themselves. Start off with the snap over Bibbins' head that once it goes over your head, even if it's in the end zone, just as an offense player, hop on it. Okay, you lose two points. Well, they'll get two points, but it's two better than seven. Yeah. Instead, they didn't hop on it in the end zone because they were kind of like, oh, we're going to hop on it first or deciding, well, if I hop on it, they're going to get points. They got points anyway because Cleveland hopped on it, took advantage, got seven, already behind the eight ball. You know, Pittsburgh went out with their short passing game, and it was kind of productive, but it went out of whack when Big Ben made some type of resistance, and then you rushed the throw. Or if the throw wasn't there, instead of throwing it away, you try to force it open because he's accustomed throughout his career doing one of two things forcing the issue and not being held accountable or brushing off upfield rushers and getting able to get to his second and third reads and then make the vertical shot down the field. Well, he's not brushing off anybody anymore because he's old and he's not getting away with the, getting away with the tight window throws amongst a crowded atmosphere because the zip in the ball just isn't there on a consistent basis anymore. And so, listen, I called it before the season started. When Big Ben came, off the injury, I said, look, Pittsburgh's going to be 11 and five. They want to be in 12 and four. And I said, offensively, they're going to be a short to intermediate passing offense. And it's going to be interesting to see can their running game get off the ground because the running game hasn't been the same since Le'Veon Bell left. If their running game can't get off the ground, their short intermediate passing game will not only suffice as their aerial attack, they'll suffice as their rushing attack as well. But that'll be successful in the regular season, especially against the competition that they played. In the playoffs long term, you can't do it. Because in the playoffs, as Drew Brees I saw, because I'm a Saints fan, defenses are going to take away what you do best. And so if your normal sense of offensive productivity is the short and intermediate passing attack, they're going to take away the short routes. They're going to sit on the intermediates, and they're going to invite the vertical shots down the field. And it gets even worse when you can't run the football. So when you can't run the football, they're not going to put – seven guys in a box to where yeah your short intermediate passing routes might be tighter windows and contested but if it gets there and your guy's able to break a tackle he can go to distance instead they're going to play zone they're going to play coverage and they're going to basically make you throw in the teeth of a zone and Ben showcased throughout the game he was able to but early on the turnovers man the turnovers killed them they were down 28 nothing in the first quarter because they turned the ball over three times you can't turn the ball over three times in the NFL playoffs and expect to win. You can't. You just can't. You can't. Now, Pittsburgh got themselves together and only turned the ball over once the next three quarters, but the damage was done. The damage was done. So I don't even think Cleveland went into their full bag, I think, as a team in terms of me walking away being like, wow, they really showed Pittsburgh. They, they, they didn't really have to show Pittsburgh anything. Pittsburgh showcased to the Browns hey, we're not ready for this moment. And then on the offensive side, they didn't stop the Cleveland Brown rushing attack like I thought they could have. And then Joe Hayden's not back there in the secondary. They're a whole different secondary when Joe Hayden's not there. Um, Jarvis Landry was getting easy, short, intermediate catches off the line unabated. Rashard Higgins was getting the same treatment as well. Baker Mayfield wasn't getting any type of pressure. So the SAG master known as TJ Watt wasn't doing his job. And so just like that, it's an L. But... There was a comment, Chris Clay, um, Chris Claypool, that's his name. I don't know if his first name's Chris. I'm just call him look, Claypool, the young wide receiver that they got from Notre Dame. He made a comment on his uh, TikTok, basically saying, you know, he's being a little salty, a little salty guy. Saying, look, hey man, tough loss, but um, they're gonna get clapped by the Chiefs, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, you're a hater. Nobody likes the Steelers. We get it, bro. He, he's a sore loser. He's salty, but come on, like we've seen plenty of clips of guys in league being sore losers. We've seen Cam Newton be a sore loser on multiple occasions. You could you could say, hey, man, being a sore loser is kind of whack as a grown man, but let's not make it bigger than what it is. I mean, look, Cass been dogging the Steelers all year, and now it's time for guys to dog on even more because they fell short, and you got every right to do what you want to do. It's America, free country. As long as you're not threatening bodily harm to somebody, you good. But, I mean, hey, 
when you kick a dog while he's down, don't feel the type of way if you decide to step back up and be like, hey, man, fight back. And so while his fighting back wasn't anything groundbreaking, he just said, oh, the Browns ain't going to beat the Chiefs. He was salty, but he's right. Let's get to the salty. Even if they lose to the Chiefs, Cleveland did what they were supposed to do. Nobody expected them to make the playoffs. Then when they made the playoffs, nobody expected them to win the game. They can get demolished by Kansas City 50-0, to and it will still be a successful season because they won a playoff game. Now, they're not going to go out there. They're players. They're coached. They're going to go out there like, oh, we happy to be here. They're going to fight. But here's the reason why they're going to get more than likely detonated by Kansas City. Number one, defensively, they're atrocious. Let's, let's be real. They're the second-worst defensive team in, in the playoffs behind the Titans. Um, and the main reason why is because coming into this year, I said it again, when opposing offenses, more importantly, their offensive line coach, come into the game with a game plan catered around aligning all the offensive line protection towards Miles Garrett's side so he won't get off and basically say, you know what, somebody else in that D-line is going to have to beat me, and they can't get home, that's a problem. And in that game in particular, Pittsburgh, when they knew down 20 and they were going to drop back and throw, there were times big in that time, and he was dying them up. Now, hopefully, Denzel Ward will be back. More than likely, he will be. He's one of their better players in the secondary. But to beat the Chiefs, you have to have an answer. Not really for Tyreek Hill, even though he is the ultimate game-breaking detonator from a verticality standpoint deep down the field. You need to have an answer for Travis Kelsey, who is top three in the league in receiving yards. Patrick Mahomes' ultimate safety blanket. If you don't have whether it's a safety, a fast linebacker with nice underrated range, if you don't have that type of defensive player to provide that for Kelsey, because a zone concept isn't going to work because he's skilled enough to sit into the soft spot of the zone and get open. It's going to be a long day. They don't have the pass for us to get to Mahomes. Pittsburgh did. Buffalo has the potential to. Baltimore has the potential to. We know for sure Cleveland doesn't outside of Gary. And once the Chiefs come in and basically spend most of their afternoon double and triple teaming Miles Garrett, who else is going to get home? And that secondary has been walking Swiss cheese for over a month. So if you can't rush Patrick Mahomes and you can't stop the pass, how are you going to win? And we didn't go back to the underrated aspect within the Chiefs offense. They can run the football. I know a lot of people look at this team as glitz and glamour, put a lot of lollipops out there that could get picked off and they don't. They're all about the aerial attack. They can slow the game down and grind you. So if Andy Reid, who I think has become a better play caller and surveyor of the game than what he used to be in his Philadelphia days and early on in the Chief days as well under Alex Smith, if he sees the game is becoming one-dimensional in terms of Cleveland's kind of dominating the time of possession and the sense of the game's momentum in terms of physicality and productivity in the trenches, he's going to do the same. He's going to run and grind it out. He's going to score, and he's going to put that pressure on the Browns to continue to play that way. Because eventually what teams eventually fall in love with when they play the Kansas City Chiefs, because it's an offense that's explosive, they're going to eventually realize it's Kansas City. They can go off and get 21 in a quarter. And to prevent that, the opposition sometimes goes over and beyond with extracurricular play calling that isn't really aligned to their nature. And so, yeah, lack for better terms, Cleveland did a great job. Went to the playoffs, won a playoff game against a divisional rival that they've never beaten on the road in about 15 years. But reality will strike very hard against the Kansas City Chiefs team because they just don't have the personnel, in my opinion, to beat Kansas City. Um, I think they have the right formula. I think they have the right coach. I think they have the right running game and running back. But defensively, you need more than one pass person to get the Mahomes. Can't just get you can't just beat them with just one dude that can get there. You need guys in the secondary that can at least hold up. They don't have that outside of Denzel Ward. And then in your offensive end, when you're down, you gotta have an offense when you're down 14 nothing, that can at least keep pace with Kansas City when they allow you to get back in. Because Kansas City is going to open a door to let you get back in because they're going to get laxed offensively. Their defense is prone to give up big plays, things of that nature. When that door is open, are you going to be able to come in and make a 
and have a seat on the couch and stay there for a strong period of time. Cleveland, I don't think they have that in them right now, which is why Kansas City is going to move on to the AFC Championship game, what I think a resigning victory against the Cleveland Browns. And so before we diverge into the rest, I'm going to talk about these divisional playoff games in specific, particular fashion. We addressed Cleveland and Kansas City. I did that at an utmost extensive rate. That's pushed to the side. want to go to the other AFC matchup, Baltimore and Buffalo. The last time these two teams met, they met the last year in the play in the regular season. This is when Baltimore was at its all-time high or the one seed Buffalo were starting to make a push towards being a wildcard team, which they eventually were. And that game was a physical slobber knocker game in Buffalo ball places. Baltimore was able to get the win by running the football down the throat. Did I say Buffalo or Baltimore? Baltimore. Buffalo is in a similar predicament that they kind of were in last year. They're not a great run defensive team. They're not bad, but they're not good. And they let, especially the coach early on, run it right down the throat. Now, Baltimore has creative ways to run the football than Indianapolis, mainly because their focal point offensively is rushing. They're basically a triple option team in the NFL. So they can hit you with the read option. They can hit you with the dive. They can hit you with the counter. They can hit you with the quarterback design run. They can hit you with all kinds of looks. And they've struggled to stop the run throughout the year. They have the personnel to make it to be impactful. Like Tremaine Edmonds. I like Ed Oliver. I like the ends that they have to be tackles, the athletic linebackers, the safeties, the corners can tackle. They're not afraid to do that. But the Colts ran a party on them early in the game. And early in the game, they kind of set the tone to jump ahead. And then late in the game, they kind of come back and make amends for, you know, inept play calling and put them behind the eight ball in the first place. Baltimore is going to stick with the run. And I fear Buffalo's ineptitude to stop the run is going to prolong drives which is going to have time position on Baltimore's side. And how will Josh Allen react in a situation where he looks at the score? And he's like, I'm down, two, I'm down two possessions. Is he going to start pressing? Towards the end of that Colts game, he started pressing. And they were winning. That's my only issue with Josh Allen in the playoffs. And I think eventually it's going to be a hurdle. He jumps over and surpasses once he kind of gets comfortable within his own skin and realizes, listen, I'm a great talent. I don't need to make the whole one play all the time. The best thing to do is sometimes to take your losses and move on. That's why I don't have Buffalo coming out the AFC. And this is why I don't have Buffalo winning this game. Now, I was the big Bills bandwagoner before the year even started. I said they were the dark horse in the AFC. Now everybody's saying they're the dark horse in the AFC. After they ran through the month of December on a mission to win the AFC East, but I don't think this is a matchup that fits them. And they showcase me elements of vulnerability against the Colts. Not great against the run. They are prone to get beat off of the pass because of their inability to stop the run. So they sometimes focus on the run too much where they can get beaten on some simplistic routes. Crossing routes kill them against the Colts, the routes. Um, and then offensively, Josh Allen had time to dice up that, that Colts secondary. Baltimore's pass rush hasn't been as good, you know what I'm saying, as their roster may showcase they should be. You have Calais Campbell, you have Derrick Wolf, you have Matt Judon, you think, okay, they get after it on a consistent basis. They don't, but they're a better pass rushing team than the Colts, mainly because of intricate ways they try to get to the quarterback due to blitzing. And their back end is way more talented. Marlon Humphrey is a dog. Uh, Peters may have couple of interception opportunities just off of fooling Allen on some cluing type coverages. That secondary is a swarm. They contest everything. They're going to make Allen look as if they're going to make Allen think he has an opportunity when he doesn't. I think that secondary, that pass rush, that's underrated. It's going to get to Allen. I think he's going to get him flustered. I think he might be off his score just a bit. And I think that'll be enough. And I, I'm going to say something that I didn't really think was possible heading into the playoffs. The Baltimore Ravens are going to beat the Buffalo Bills, and they're going to go to the AFC Championship game. To play the Kansas City Chiefs, a little more Mahomes title game. That's that's great TV. In the NFC, 
Packers, Rams, touched on it a little bit. Great matches you're going to have individually. Jalen Ramsey, Devontae Adams. Ramsey's a physical, technically sound, versatile corner. Adams is a route-running maestro that is more so predicated on the finesse side. He's not a guy that wants to bang with you as well. He likes to route you up to get open, not physically overwhelm you to get open. It's going to be a differential of styles that Ramsey's going to be facing compared to what he faced last week against DK Metcalf. That Rams D-line against that Packers O-line, one of the better Packer O-lines in all of football in recent memory in that Aaron Rodgers era. They're not going to have Dave Bakhtiari. He tore his ACL before the season finale. Um, so their O-line is not going to be as strong, but it's one of the more strong O-lines nonetheless. I think the key for the Packers is I've always said this, and I'm going to continue to say this, they're at their best when Aaron Jones is involved. When they give him 10 or more carries, they're undefeated. Uh, when they give them, yeah, when they give them less than that, they're not. And obviously in playoff football, they're going to feature Aaron Jones a lot. They're going to run it. Their best bet is running the football against the Rams because what Seattle eventually showcased, but by then it was too late, you can't run on the Rams. And your best bet might be to run Aaron Jones 25, 30 times more so than dropping back 30 times and needing Devontae Adams to get 11 catches. Adams might wind up with five, but those five catches can be game changers because they can be predicated off of a running game that allowed the passing game to open up against that blanket of a secondary. So I still got the pack coming out. They're going to beat the Rams. They're going to go to the NFC Championship game. This is the most complete Packers team I've seen. Now, I made a comment midseason, Mark. I thought they reminded me of this team from last year. A uh, talented team with deficiencies. Um, that secondary looks like it's starting to come into its final form. And I've always said they have the most talented defense in the conference. They just underperform. I don't know if it's scheme or what, but they're starting to hit their stride. Jared Alexander has been in and out of the lineup, but he is reaching elite DB status. This is probably his best year in his career, and he's playing well. Darnell Savage is turning that corner as being that defensive back impact player. They've got versatile. Kevin King has stayed healthy and been consistently promising. Their secondary has been playing at a solid level throughout the year. And they don't need them to play great against a Rams team that's going to have either a bum-fingered Jared Goff or a virtually unknown starter known as John Wolford, but they need those guys to be locked in and invested. And they will expect the Packers to move on to the NFC Championship game. And then the Sunday night nightcapper, Bucks, Saints, Tampa Bay, they're going to be coming out for blood. But I just think like the Baltimore Ravens, not really the Baltimore Ravens-Bills matchup, like the Browns-Chiefs matchup, I don't think this is a good matchup for the Bucks. I don't. Um, their offensive line really hasn't been tested since the playoff game against their football team. And I always thought the football team's pass was a little bit overrated. I like Chase Young's personality, but I always thought Montez Sweat was more so the better pass rushing DN out of the two at this point of his career. He showcased it in terms of him getting a sack. De'Aaron Payne was the one that, was, that got the pressure up the middle with two sacks. And the Saints defensive tackles were probably one of the more underrated quintet in all of football. Uh, we know what Malcolm Brown and David Armand are able to do. Sheldon Rankins was a former top 15 pick. Uh, Malcolm Roach has been an underrated uh, free agent signee at that position at the D tackle spot as well. They get pressure on the defensive tackle, the interior. And then the guy that's given them the fits the first two times they've met, and he could be back in the lineup, Trey Hendrickson on the edge. So their pass rush is a lot more versatile and much more nuanced. And they've seen them multiple times throughout the year. And psychologically, they can't block those guys. And when Brady doesn't have time, it's a problem. And I don't think they're going to be able to run at a successful clip as they did against the football team. So when the rushing game isn't hitting properly and they have to draw back and throw 25 to 30 times, can they do it? And then offensively, I've said Drew Brees is handicapped as a passer, and he is. But every time he plays the Bucs, that's kind of put on the wayside. Because Tampa Bay, like I said, they're a young defensive secondary that is coached by a coordinator that has no reins on how far he's able to go to get pressure on the quarterback. That spells a recipe of disaster. We have guys on the back end as a, that are – opportunistic but very undisciplined when they do so so those are my takes on that now before we finish up on the podcast and we segue to the end i'm going to touch base on the nba um, they're going through a current 
COVID-19 crisis right now. I think Boston Celtic games have been canceled three times this past week. And it's got a lot of basketball fans kind of looking at each other and muttering amongst each other and themselves. Got to bring back that bubble. Got to bring back that bubble. And my response to bringing back the bubble is why ideally it would seem like the apropos final solution that would end all evils currently in the NBA you know, vector. Ideally, that's not going to happen. Um, two things. Number one, players wouldn't go for it. And number two, the NBA is not going to go for it as a, as a brand. Now, the brand of the NBA, they've commented on, even though the bubble worked and nobody got infected when they're in there, supposedly, they lost on millions to billions of dollars that year when they brought back the, you know, the season. They don't want to put themselves in a bubble, not allow fans to come and basically tell players you can't go home and do X, Y, and Z. You got to, because not because they care about the players' well being as much, it's more so about they miss out on hella dollars. So they're willing to take a break for a couple of weeks and then rebring it back. Silver's even said he doesn't want to take a break because he thinks if they take a break and they come back, more guys are going to be infected. And he's right, more of them will because. What I've learned about grown people in this pandemic, they've acted like children in terms of not being able to follow protocol and feeling entitled and individualistic enough to feel like I'm going to do my own thing and everything will work out itself. And it doesn't truly work that way, especially when thinking that mentality puts other people at risk as well. So there's that. The other thing is players wouldn't go for it. Paul George literally during the playoffs talked about how he was depressed, being cooped up in a bunk where all he could do is go and hoop and come back and wallow in his thoughts and on his phone on social media. And he couldn't go home. He couldn't see his kids, couldn't see his wife, couldn't go to his favorite restaurant, favorite go-to place to cool down after. He can't do that. Players are not going to allow themselves for the next X amount of months to not see their family. That, that's what they're going to have to do. If you bring back the bubble, you'd have to bring back the same protocol from the bubble too. And those guys, they didn't enjoy it. They're not going to say it now. I mean, only selective people have said it, but there's going to be a documentary coming about coming out about this eventually where people are going to say it was living hell. Those guys, those individual players aren't going to go for another bubble with those same rules. The only way they go for a bubble is if they basically say, We'll do the bubble if we can bring five different family members every month or something like that. And maybe that's something that can be orchestrated possibly, but I think the league is inevitably going to have to lower their guard and make that happen in terms of saying, you know what, we thought we could do the games in various arenas amongst a pandemic. We couldn't, sorry, let's do the bubble. They're not going to do that because that means say goodbye to the money that they're already trying to recoup from losing the year prior. So, listen, uh, what do I think is going to happen? I think if it gets really bad, they may cancel the games for a couple of weeks. But even when the cancellation is over, they're going to go back to playing and they're going to finish the season. Uh, NFL had outbreaks. Teams had various outbreaks in the NFL. Titans, Ravens, uh, you know, Browns, three teams in particular had outbreaks. Um, my team, the Saints, you know what I'm saying? Kamara didn't play. C.D. Deuce, he didn't play. Our fullback, you know, was a carrier and said he wasn't a carrier because of false positive. So it's the new normal. You're going to have guys that are going to have the virus because you're going to have guys that are going to be incompetent in terms of not being able to follow directions because they refuse to. Or the fact that, hey, you could do everything you're supposed to do and still get infected because it's a disease that you can't see. It's in the air that you breathe. It's in things that you touch. You don't know where it where it is. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it starts. You just know it's amongst you. And with that reality known, that's a situation that inevitably a lot of people are going to succumb to and be affected by. So I think, you know, the league's going to be okay. They're going to finish the season. Right now, it's early. Um, and I think they're being aided by the fact that the football playoffs are going on and, you know, March Madness, things like that. If they were on their own, like supremely isolated and people are like in depth and depthly looking at it, like, yo, what the heck is going on? 
I think they'd be a little bit, I think they'd be a lot more quicker in terms of making a decision to kind of rectify the situation. But they're kind of sitting back and letting things play out because they know their viewers aren't truly captivated by the product yet. NFL playoffs are still going on. College football players just ended. So got that working out for them. But I think eventually, if it does get supremely bad, they're going to probably take a break, but then eventually come back and play amongst the public. And what I do know for sure is they have already said, but this situation has completely solidified it. They're going to be promoting the vaccine to their players and their players, a lot of them are going to take that. And so as a public, we're going to ultimately see the side effects of the, of the virus, I'm not the virus, the vaccine on those players because they're going to be the first American public figures to be taking that amongst us, you know? So we'll see how that plays out. With that being said, this is the end of episode five of the Independent Intel Podcast. We'll be back with episode six. First, let me guys remind you, let me guys remind you, we're, we're off the YouTube wave. YouTube wave's over for now. Um, we're going to continue to post on Apple Pod and Spotify for all the listeners to hear us. Eventually, eventually, guests will come. I keep saying that every time, but they will come. Um, great talking to you guys once again. Back to doing this on a weekly basis consistently for the, for the listeners. Hope you guys enjoyed this segment, these variety of segments that I've broached upon for the listeners' ears. Other than that, I hope you guys have a great, great, great week. Stay safe, stay protected, mask up. I'll be hollering back. Peace.